If you is struggling to find a new conservative host, a New York Post writer is leaving New York City for her children, and she wrote all about it, and a GOP congressman battles a liberal about critical race theory, as one of its leading advocates says parents shouldn't have any say on what is taught in schools. This is Rob Smith is Problematic. Problematics, problematics, welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas holiday and you didn't eat and drink too much. I certainly did, but that is neither here nor there. But we are back into the media politics world that we all just can't get enough of. And I stumbled across something that's very interesting. I stumbled across a really interesting article um, in Political Playbook that is about The View. And I wanted to to jump off this first post-Christmas holiday episode and talk a little bit about The View. Um, so this article is all about how The View is struggling to find a conservative co-host to put on the panel to basically <laughs> be bullied <laughs> and treated very poorly by the rest of that cast in all of America. So they are having a very, very hard time finding it. And the article gets into why, and, and they talk to a couple of different people, and it's obviously very well-sourced, very interesting, comes from Politico. But this is what I think about The View, and this is what I have always thought about it. The View is one of the most important shows on television, hands down. Say what you want about Whoopi Goldberg, about Joy Behar, about Sonny Hostin, about any of these people, and I say a lot about them, particularly that they are just liberals in this uh, New York City media bubble that they never really venture out of. And my biggest problems with Whoopi and Sonny and Joy Behar is that at this point, and The View has been on for so long, it's almost um, a victim of its own success, which means that when you're Sonny Hostin, when you're Joy Behar, when you're Whoopi Goldberg, and your platform is to be beloved by the left because you are this big voice for liberals, then you live in the constant fear of these people turning on you should you ever tow away from the liberal-leaning line. Should you sound anything like a conservative or even an independent or even somebody who is challenging liberal orthodoxy in any way, these people that proclaim to love Whoopi Goldberg and love Sonny Hostin and love Joy Behar will turn on them at any moment. And so this is the dichotomy that all of these ladies live in right now. And you can, you can feel it every time you watch them, right? So this is this is what they're living in. And it is the most important show on television, one of the most important shows on television, because, and we can talk a lot about, you know, Fox News hits, and, and we can talk a lot about podcasting and all of that stuff, but this is the show that allows for discussion of what's going on in the world to be seen by a broadcast television audience. And also, it is a show that allows for a conservative perspective on these things to be seen as widely as possible, right? We all love Fox News. We all know that that is a audience that is going to be more conservative-leaning that's going to watch Fox News, right? So when you're on The View and when you are even somebody that's liberal that's watching The View, if there's a conservative that's worth her salt on there, that conservative is going to make you think a little bit differently, right? That is why The View is so important. 
it is notoriously harsh for more conservative panelists. You know, we've had the we've had Elizabeth Hasselbeck, we've had Megan McCain, who left in that sort of blaze of, of glory earlier this year. And even though I don't find Megan McCain particularly likable on television, she was good at what she did on that show. And so now The View is struggling because they do not have that Republican. And so this is from the article, and this is very interesting, okay? Sources close to the show said that the search has stalled as executives struggle to find a conservative cast member who checks all the right boxes. They will not consider a Republican who is a denier of the 2020 election results, embrace the January 6th riots, or is seen as flirting too heavily with fringe conspiracy theories or the MAGA wing of the GOP. But at the same time, the host must have credibility with mainstream Republicans, many of whom still support Donald Trump. Now, do you understand why they're having so much trouble? They're having so much trouble because they want to have a quote-unquote conservative, but they don't want anybody who believes in some of the mainstream things that conservatives believe nowadays. And you want to talk about um, denying the 2020 election results. I don't think that anybody who will have a real conversation about some of the discrepancies that we all saw in 2020, I don't think that that's denying the results. I think that that's just saying there is maybe something that's a little untoward here, right? And also embracing the January 6th riots. The thing about the January 6th and, and, and what happened in January 6th is that there's not a mainstream Republican I know of that has never that has not said that what happened at the Capitol was wrong and that those people never should have been there. But there are people like myself who laugh in the face of the idea that is floated by the left that this was an insurrection and this was a threat to democracy and these people wanted to take over the federal government. And if you're you know if you're watching and in, in, in consuming any of the stuff about the the January 6th riot that's outside of the MSNBC sort of CNN propaganda about what they would like for people to think that that was, then you realize that it just really wasn't as serious as they would like to say. So this is why they're having a hard time finding people. And this is the thing, and this is what uh, one of the rotating guest hosts said. You know that they've had they've had Essie Cup, they've had Alyssa Farah, they've had Morgan Ortegas, they've had Condoleezza Rice, Carly Fiorino, Gretchen Carlson. My personal favorite is they had former Congresswoman Mia Love. The uh, she was the lone black female Republican Congresswoman. She left office, and now she's doing the political commentary thing. I believe that she is a CNN contributor. As much as you look problematic, as much as you guys claim to hate The View, much as you guys claim to hate Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar and all of these people, when I post clips of The View on my Facebook page, and if you guys do not follow me, follow me um, on Facebook at Rob Smith Online, they fly. So as much as people do not like Whoopi Goldberg or, or, Joy, or uh, Joy Behar or any of these people, the clips fly. And the clips from The View do the best when there is a conservative there to challenge them. And having watched all of these shows where they had these rotating guest hosts and got clips and, and seeing what played on my Facebook page and seeing the things that were going, going viral, Mia Love's clips did the best because she's a black woman, a black female conservative, and she really did give it to them on that panel. So if I was a View executive... I would be calling Mia Love's people right now and making that happen. And I think that having a black female conservative perspective on that panel as somebody who has also served in Congress 
that is the unicorn that they're looking for. But for whatever reason, I don't think that they want her. I think that they think that she would be too good. This You have to understand, when, when mainstream media is looking for a conservative, they want somebody that is good on TV, that's smart, but not too smart. And what they want is somebody that can be made to look stupid and foolish. This is what they want because they know that the vast majority of the people that are that are watching this show are liberals. And so they want to see the conservative getting bashed. That's why um, these girls leave. That's why Hasselbeck left. That's why Meghan McCain left. That's why these people do not stay and they talk about how poorly they were treated. Now, they have Ana Navarro on there, right? Ana Navarro is not going to work. And this is what the Political Playbook article says. Sources said... That at the same time, the anti-Trump conservative can't be seen as too chummy with the other co-hosts, co-hosts, as the network's market research shows that the audience wants to see the women spar. Sources said this has hurt the chances of Honor Navarro, a regular fill-in on the conservative chair who worked as a surrogate for Joe Biden in 2020. She is perceived by the producers as too friendly with the other hosts and not a traditional Republican. And they're absolutely right. Honor Navarro is totally boring on this show. The last time that I watched The View when they had her guest hosting um, on the conservative slot, I, I think she was whining to uh to some republican congressman that they needed to leave aoc alone like what conservative is whining about republican congressmen being too hard on aoc it's weird and i've said this before in this space when talking about the view ana navarro has kind of painted herself into a corner when it comes to whether or not she's a conservative or, or whatever even on the show because here's the thing you can't just be never Trump anymore. You can't claim to be a conservative and then just be anti-Trump because Trump in in a lot of different ways is just not in the foreground as much as he was before. So before, Ana Navarro could just say, oh, Trump is disgusting and he's this and he's that and he's destroying our democracy. And then, you know, she would get pats on the head from the little liberals and all that stuff. And, then, you know, she would be, you know, good friends with the liberals at the time. That's not going to work anymore. And since she's not taken seriously by any conservatives anymore, it kind of leaves her in a conundrum. It, it really does. So she's not going to be the one. Who's it going to be? I don't know. Apparently, this article says that they're going to bring in um, – the article says that they're going to bring in Bari Weiss, you know, the ex-New York Times opinion writer who left because she got bullied out of the New York Times, and Lisa Ling, who's not conservative. I don't really know what Lisa Ling would bring to the table. Um, she's not – particularly interesting. Now, the most interesting thing is that this article says that they tried to recruit Kat Tempf, who you may know uh, from Fox News. I do gut felt with Kat Tempf like once a month. I'm, I'm in New York City. And I do gut felt. Kat Tempf is great. She is a libertarian. She's not some fire-breathing, you know, crazy, as the left would say, liberal cons uh, conservative, mind you. But she turned them down, quote, because of the show's reputation for treating conservatives poorly and her contract with Fox. I don't think that it was about the contract with Fox. I just think that she knew that if she went into The View, it was going to be a meat grinder. It was going to be probably one or two of the worst years of her life. And then she would be in that revolving door of conservatives out of The View. So my advice, if The View executives were listening to me, my advice would be to bring on Mia Love. Even though I love Morgan, Morgan's a friend of mine, um, I don't know, you know, Gretchen Carlson or Kind of Leaders of Rice or Carly Fiorina or Alyssa Fair or any of these other people, but what I know 
is that of all of these people, I would probably go, I would probably go between Morgan and Mia. And I would personally prefer Mia because I think that she can just speak to so many more different issues. And I think that that is going to be a voice and a perspective that America will really benefit from in 2022 and beyond. Because I'm telling you, 2022 is going to be a wild year for politics. The best thing The View can do is get somebody that is really going to give it to those liberals on that stage. I personally think that person is Mia Love, but we will see how it ends up. Up next, GOP Congressman Byron Donald battles a liberal on critical race theory as one of its leading advocates says parents shouldn't have any say on what's taught in schools. More on that after the break. So GOP Congressman Byron Donald, you may not be aware of him because he is one of the black Republican congressmen that the media tries to pretend doesn't exist. But he does. He is a representative in Florida. And he had a very interesting moment um, and a very eloquent take on critical race theory that I had not heard before on Meet the Press. And I want to play for you this entire exchange. This is Basically, him speaking with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, and there is a New Yorker, uh, the New Yorker staff writer, name is Jelani Cobb, one of the you know one of the black liberals that's that's exalted in media, um, in mainstream media to, to to speak of nothing but race and racism all the time. But anyway, so he was kind of battling with this guy, and they had two completely different takes on critical race theory. I thought that this was important enough um, to share this entire exchange with you. Congressman Donald, I think this is the concern. You've heard this concern, which is, and, and we, I brought up the Tulsa race massacre because I didn't, I wasn't taught it in schools. I, I went to public schools in Florida. Uh, something I learned in the last two years was Axe Handle Sunday, mm. which was a, a horrible mm. uh, racial violence in right. Jacksonville, Florida. Right. I assume you think we should be teaching these events in our public schools. Absolutely. So, so how would you do it? In, and, and, and what is banning critical race theory in your mind? do to impact the teaching of, say, Axe Handles. Look, the number one thing we all agree on is that history should be taught. Objective history should be taught at all times. I went to an elementary school, even if it's painful. I went to an elementary school where they taught objective history about our nation from from slavery through Jim Crow, through civil rights era. So I learned that in elementary school. Every child should have that. The issue with critical race theory is it is a subjective view of American history and America law using race as the lens to focus. And when you bring subjectivity into the classroom, that is what has parents upset. That is what leads, unfortunately, to children being divided in certain class segments based upon race. That has happened in some schools across our country, not all. But when you have something like that occur, that is when parents step up and they oppose it. And we shouldn't have subjectivity. We should definitely teach objective history in our country. Well, let me me ask you this. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I I mean, I happen to be a historian, and historians don't really believe there is such a thing as objective history. What we do is recognize that we have a perspective, that there are, we're all subjective. 
And what we try to do is, uh, despite those subjectivities, follow what the evidence suggests most stringently. And so that's how we come to the conclusion that there is this dynamic of race uh, in which people, one group of people have disproportionately been victimized and one group of people have disproportionately benefited from that victimization. It's difficult to get around that, even if people think that it will make people feel uncomfortable. And the last thing I'll say is that there is no teaching of critical race theory in our schools. You know, I wrote about this in The New Yorker. The critical race theory is an advanced uh, issue of jurisprudence, legal jurisprudence, uh, for which there's an extensive body of scholarship. Uh, if your fifth grader is learning critical race theory, then I would say congratulations because you have a genius on your hand in their, in their last year of law school. Congressman, I, I want you to respond to that. The, the idea that is, or we, did we search for a, a solution to a problem that didn't exist when it came to critical race theory? Oh, no, that is not true schools. at all. That's not true at all. Look, the number one thing that's happened with critical CRT ending up in classrooms is not an actual course. It is through diversity, equity, inclusion seminars that teachers take. It's through what happens comes in classroom material, in textbook material, in library material. And all these things, all these things actually bring us the subjective view, not of our history, but how children are, that subjectivity is being brought to children today, how they view each other, how they view themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to be very, very careful about. That's what parents are very, very careful of. Okay, so I thought that this was a very interesting exchange. I think that, um, first of all, Byron Donalds makes a really good point. There is a move for these critical race theory advocates to, they, they do two different things here, and which is, it's very strange because they do these things at the same time. On one hand, on one hand, these people pretend that critical race theory is not taught in schools at all, which is a lie that I will get to in a little bit because it's a lie that Jelani Cobb continued to, to propagate. But also, on the other hand, there is this idea that people who are anti-critical race theory are, are anti-American history being taught in schools, and that American history is sometimes painful and is a lot of time <laughs> not uh, the best for African-Americans, right? And so that's a lie as well. But let me get to this idea and this, this kind of a talking point here that critical race theory is just not taught in schools, right? And so this is what you see a lot of the reporters and mainstream media saying. This is what you saw Nicole Wallace say on MSNBC. This is what you saw. There was a, a battle with Brianna Keeler on CNN with uh, some GOP congressman where she repeated up and down that critical race theory is not taught. Okay, so this is from Chris Rufo. And now, if you guys know who Chris Rufo is, um, he is basically the person that is making a name for himself, exposing how deeply critical race theory has been integrated into the educational curriculums of public schools all across America. And so basically, this is from a Twitter thread of his, and, and he has basically screenshots from PowerPoints and all that stuff. So in 2015, then-Governor McAuliffe's Department of Education instructed Virginia public schools to, quote, embrace critical race theory in order to, quote, re-engineer attitudes and belief systems. So they explicitly endorse critical race theory. Under the Northam administration, Superintendent of Public Instruction James Lane sent a memo to Virginia public schools endorsing foundations of critical race theory in education, calling it an important analytic tool that can further spur development in education. And so when you look at that stuff and, and a lot of different other facts, and I really, really encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, I want you to follow Chris Rufo on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Real Chris Rufo. But 
the idea that this is just not being taught in schools is a false one. And I thought that it was a missed opportunity, I think, by Byron Donalds to go ahead and say, no, this actually is being taught in schools. And when I did the entire episode on critical race theory that I did, uh, I, I think it was a couple months back, I really went into the origins of critical race theory. Of course, critical race theory has legal origins, but the argument right now, and the proof is in the pudding right now, that the legal arguments and the legal and the scholastical stuff about critical race theory has somehow now been diluted into the stuff that you're seeing in the public schools where we're separating white kids from black kids and we're telling white kids that they're oppressors and telling black kids that they're oppressed and all of this other stuff that we're seeing right now. So it is a lie that came from Jelani Cobb that critical race theory is not taught in schools because it is. And I think Byron Donalds missed an opportunity to kind of catch him in that lie. And so now there is a leading advocate of this critical race theory who is basically saying that parents should not have any say on what's taught in schools. I'm going to have that for you right after the break. All right, finishing up our conversation on critical race theory, there is a writer. This woman's name is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She founded the 1619 Project, which basically argues that America's founding was really in 1619 when the first slave ships came over, and it wasn't in, you know, 1776 with the Constitution and all that stuff. And this is the argument that she's making. So she is one of the leading advocates for critical race theory in schools, because now she's advocating for the 1619 Project to be a part of historical curriculum in schools. Now, this one, a Pulitzer, all of the left-leaning liberal people who want to use this kind of stuff to indoctrinate kids in public schools, they love this stuff. And so now, this is her on record, again, on, on NBC, as saying that she just doesn't quite understand why parents are so upset with this stuff being taught in schools and, and wondering why they should have any say in it, period. This is what she had to say. And I don't really understand this idea that parents should decide what's being taught. I'm not a professional educator. I don't have a degree in social studies or science. We send our children to school because we want them to be taught by people who have expertise in the subject area. And that is not my job. When the when the uh, governor or, or the candidate said that he didn't think parents should be, be deciding what's being taught in school, he was panned for that. But, but that's just the fact. Um, this is why we send our children to school and don't homeschool because these are the professional educators who have the expertise to teach social studies, to teach history, to right. teach science, to teach literature. And I think we should leave that to the educators. Yes, you- There's a couple of things that strike me from this. Number one, I'm watching this, not listening to this, and, and really Google Nicole Hannah-Jones and, and watch some of this stuff. So Nicole Hannah-Jones is biracial, and it's always crazy to me how <laughs> it is always the people with one white parent that just seem to hate white people the most and just seem to be on this quest to ch- to prove that they are just blacker than any other person that ever existed. It, that's not PC. It's just very bizarre. This is just something that I've always seen as a fairly dark-skinned black man myself, that it, it was always the lighter-skinned people that just have this chip on their shoulder about how black they are and how black other people aren't. Whatever. Anyway. 
So this is the argument here that she's making. The argument is that she just does not understand why parents are so upset and it should be up to the professionals, the educators, and all of that stuff. So question problematics. Have you seen some of the people that are teaching children nowadays? If you have not, why don't you go to a little Twitter handle called Libs of TikTok, which is basically single-handedly exposing the radical leftists and the absolute lunatics that have infiltrated the public education system and that are openly bragging about indoctrinating kids, this this Twitter handle is completely insane. You will see some of the nuttiest stuff and nuttiest people you've ever seen. And these are the people in the schools. They are making videos about this stuff and they are actively proud of these things and they are putting this stuff on TikToks. I'm talking about preschool teachers that brag about teaching kids about a hundred genders and trans identities and sexualities and all this stuff. And, you know, a uh, kindergarten teacher that identifies as trans and teaches kids about queer heroes, you know, the, the BLM types who want, I mean, this is nutty stuff. And so what the Nicole Hannah Joneses of the world are telling you is that these are the competent and very sane professionals that you should just be handing over your child's education to without question. That to me, and I'm not even a parent, but that to me is insane. And it is the insanity of these leftists and these liberals who are Every day, it seems like they lose a bit more of the stranglehold that they had on society. During COVID, they lost some of the stranglehold that they had on the education of children because the children were at home and they they started, you know, their ears started perking up when they listened to what some of these lunatics were telling their kids, right? And speaking of this, and and speaking of kids and education, that is a very good segue um, into... Another thing that I want to talk to you guys about. So this was a New York City mom and New York Post writer. Her name is Carol Markowitz. And she is leaving New York City to protect her children. And she wrote all about it. So she has written a very compelling piece about why she's leaving New York City. And I wanted to share. And a lot of people, you know, I'm getting asked all the time, Rob, you're not a father. You don't have kids. Why are you so worried about the public school system? Why are you so worried about education and all that stuff? I am so worried about it because, number one, I would like to have kids one day. God knows they will never be in public schools, not as long as I can afford it. As long as problematics keep on listening to the podcast and I keep on making money in a, in a media career, I'll, I'll hopefully be able to afford to send them to private school. But I come from public schools. I come from bad public schools. My uh, um, my my high school has a rating of F from the Ohio Department of Education. So I know how little I do not know because I had a very bad public education. But even when I was in school, there wasn't sort of this far left leaning CRT indoctrination. But Carol's article isn't about the CRT indoctrination. This is about the effect that COVID policies have had on her kids. And she writes about... Um, why she's leaving New York City as the mother of three children. And she writes in depth about what the masking of kids and the restrictions on younger kids have done to her children in particular. And I want you to read this. It's very compelling. This is what she says. No one has it worse in New York than children. There is damage being done to the kids of the city with masking and continued restrictions, and few in leadership seem to care at all. 
Masking is seen as a, quote, low-cost safety option, but the idea that masking kids has no consequences is, of course, absurd. We're already seeing studies about a decrease in cognitive abilities, in particular for males and children in lower socioeconomic families. I see it in my own children, she writes. My six-year-old son, who has been masked for the entirety of his schooling, is shy and not apt to repeat himself when he is misunderstood. He will also not ask the teacher to repeat herself. It is having predictable results in his education. And she then goes on to describe how people are so quick to shut schools down. Now, granted, I told you guys a couple episodes back about how New York City is going completely insane with this Omicron variant. The lines for testing are down the block. People are wearing masks down the street. There's it makes me so sad when I see little kids with the masks on. It, it makes me just, it, it really does break my heart. And so now that New York City is going COVID crazy again, there are these calls to shut down schools again. And now she goes on to describe how, how people are so quick to want to sh- close these schools down again. Remember, the teachers unions shut them down. And you have to understand at this point in the COVID pandemic with New York City, there is arguably no other city in this country that locked down more drastically and more excessively than New York City. And there is no place in this country that has been harder hit by COVID than New York City. So it's very obvious to the objective observer that a lot of these things did not work, and yet they are doing them over and over again. And it's not the teachers' unions that actively fought so hard to keep these schools shut down in 2020 are now trying to revise history so that people will think that they wanted them open the entire time. With these people, it is always, do not believe your eyes or ears. Believe what I am telling you right now. It's the same way with the teachers' unions, same way with Fauci, same way with Biden, same way with all these people. And nobody thinks about the impact, and nobody has any really ser- really serious discussions about the impact that these closures have had on children. Nobody thinks about the impact that the public school closures had on the most vulnerable populations of kids while private schools remained open the entire time. And as somebody that lived in New York City for the better part of a decade, that is a public school system that is in trouble, mind you. And a lot of these kids that are in those public school systems in New York City were hurt very much so by these schools getting shut down like that. But here's the thing. Even liberals are starting to ask questions. And when liberals start asking questions, when the threat of being seen as someone that's not sufficiently liberal enough or someone or the threat of being seen as somebody who may be, you know, one of those evil Trump sympathizers or maybe conservative leaning, whatever, when that threat starts to dissipate is when real progress starts because then things stop being so carried by politics. So like I said, even the liberals are starting to ask questions. This is a CBS legal correspondent by the name of Jan Crawford, who's going viral for this exchange when she was asked about the most important underrepresented story of this era. Well, I want to get to underreported stories uh, as well. Jan? 
Oh, it's for me, I mean, I, my kids hear me rant about this every day, so I may as well tell you guys. It's, it's the crushing impact that our COVID policies have had on young kids and children. Mm -hmm. uh, the, by far, you know, the least serious risk for serious illness. Uh, but, I mean, even teenagers, you know, a healthy teenager has a one in a million chance of getting and, di and dying from COVID, which is way lower than you know, dying in a car wreck on a road trip. Uh, but they have suffered and sacrificed the most, especially kids in underrepresented, at-risk communities. And now we have the Surgeon General saying there's a mental health crisis mm -hmm. among our kids. Uh, the risk of suicide, girl, suicide attempts among girls now up 51% this year. Uh, black kids uh, nearly twice as likely as, as white kids to die by suicide. I mean, school closures, lockdowns, cancellation of sports. You couldn't even go on a playground in the D.C. area uh, without cops scurrying, uh, getting, shooing the kids off. Tremendous negative impact on kids. And it's been an afterthought. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt their dreams, their future, learning loss, risk of abuse, their mental health. And now with our knowledge, our vaccines, uh, if our policies don't reflect a more measured and reasonable approach for our children, mm -hmm. they will be paying for our generation's decisions uh, the rest of their lives. It's powerful stuff. And of course, she's absolutely right. Look, I don't know what this woman's politics are. She's on, you know, she's a CBS News legal analyst and correspondent, so we can pretty much guess. But even liberals are starting to have these conversations now. They're starting to ask these questions about these mandates for the kids. They're starting to ask questions about whether it was a great idea to shut down schools like this. They're starting to see a lot of these negative impacts in our kids. And the fact of the matter is this, you know, thank God for, for Carol Markowitz. Thank God for her making the decision for her family to come to Florida. And I, I, I know Carol. I've, I've met her. As a matter of fact, I should do an entire episode um, of this podcast with her because this is important. And I, I think that the most important thing for now is that we're finally starting to have these conversations. The COVID pandemic in the way that the way that this has all been so deeply politicized is going to be a lesson for our country moving forward. Because we've politicized public health, we've politicized the health of our children, we've politicized the mental health and fitness of our children, and we have done all of these things so that Democrats could win an election. And we play politics with our kids' lives. And the CBS News legal analyst was right. They will be paying for this for decades to come. Before we go, I want to thank my fellow Problematics so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at RobSmithOnline. Special thanks to our producer, Robert Borowski, and executive producers, Debbie Myers, and speaker Newt Gingrich, part of the Gingrich 360 Network part of the Gingrich 360 Network.